Amen. Amen. Okay, good. So we are joined by the wonders of modern technology, uh, by a whole bunch of our other sites this morning. And so I'm saying hello to Merns and to Stonehaven and to our friends in Bucksburn, the West site, and to Inverurie and to Ellen and to Cafe Church. And uh, I don't know, to, to anyone, if I haven't mentioned you, I'm so sorry. But hello, we're going to say hello, 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 hello. Uh, it's great. To, and you're going to say hello to us. Yeah, we can't hear that. And uh, hello to my wife in Inverurie. You're looking hot today. Uh, she'll kill me for that, but she's not here to tell me, so that's good. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit unorthodox this morning. So normally what we'll do, and um, if you've been around for at least two weeks before, then you'll know that this is the case. Normally what we do is we open up a passage of scripture that is immediately after the one that we looked at the week before, and we just kind of teach our way through books of the Bible. But I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, that Taryn and I have been away on sabbatical, which is something that you as a church so kindly, so generously enabled us to do. We were away for three months over the summer, and I said that we would take this morning to report back on what the Lord did. And one of the reasons for that is because uh, we, we met Jesus in um, a life-changing, a life-changing way whilst we were away. And as we've shared some of the things that the Lord said and did with you know, our leaders and, and uh, the leadership team and um, others, people have said, we think that you've met Jesus and you've heard from Jesus in a way that isn't only for you, but it's also for the church. And so we just want to share some of those things this morning. Uh, we just have a sense that the Lord is saying something quite specific to our church family. And so we're going to start, first of all, in Exodus chapter 40. Just to make it legal, we're going to read a bit of the Bible, and I'll, re- I'll come back to it, because I think this is a really significant passage for us. In fact, we don't normally do this, but would you stand, if you're able to stand this morning, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? It starts slightly random and gets um, more uh, clear as time goes on. So this is Exodus chapter 40, verse 16. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached to the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain around the shield and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. This is fun, isn't it? Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side. It's it's important. It's the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord Lord as the Lord commanded him. God placed the gold altar, sorry, Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up 
the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard and so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travel, travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Amen. Please take your seats. Do you see what I mean? It starts off a bit random and then gets more exciting as time goes on. So on the 1st of June this year, Taryn and I, a bit like whales, uh, submerged below the surface and disappeared for three months. Um, we came off social media. We got the office to change our email passwords. Uh, we didn't know what was happening in the church. In fact, for much of the time, we didn't even know if there was a church still there. Uh, and uh, we just disconnected. We unplugged from the world. And we said to our team, um, please only contact us in the event of an emergency. And, we went, and when we went through, what kinds of emergencies would we want to be contacted by? It was pretty much just death. Like, somebody dies, we would want to know that. But if the building burns down, not much we can do about that from another part of the world, so we don't want to know. Um, and uh, lots of different denominations and networks of churches would uh, have a different view on what a sabbatical is for. In our movement, the vineyard family of churches, uh, the, the thinking is that the primary purpose of a sabbatical is rest. And we were so delighted about that. Uh, and in fact, we, we, we rested in a way that scared us because it was clear that we were really, really tired. In fact, I would say on average, on average over the three months, we slept for 10 hours a night. So that means that some nights we slept for a lot more. And even towards the end of the sabbatical, we were still sleeping and sleeping and sleeping. We were obviously just really, really tired. And the rough schedule, just so you, I mean, I don't know whether this is of interest to you or not, but, but just so you know roughly what we did whilst we were away, uh, almost as soon as the sabbatical began, we went away to a marriage retreat down south in Kent for uh, four or five days. It was a marriage retreat called Love After Marriage. Uh, which comes out of a church in America called Bethel Church, and, and it was extraordinarily powerful. And, and there were people there whose marriages were in tatters. I'm pleased to say that that was not the situation that we were in. Um, but actually, we discovered that we had a good marriage, which was a delight to us and somewhat of a surprise to us in some ways. Uh, but also, uh, we just reconnected with one another and reconnected our marriage to the Lord. It was really sweet. I would recommend that course to anyone who is married, love after marriage. We came home for a few days. We picked up the kids and we went to America. And uh, there was, there's a, a family who had been part of our church some years ago, and they'd moved to California, and, and they heard about our sabbatical, and they said, hey, listen, we're going to be away for the summer, uh, and so you could use our house if you wanted whilst, you're, whilst we're away. And we were like, yes, we could do that. We could do that. And so we uh, lived an entirely different life for a month. We were in Orange County in California, and it was you know, pretty much sunny every day, and it was really, really an amazing time. Uh, 
touristy things, Disney and uh, Newport Beach and all of these kind of things, but also as well as that, uh, we were living about 20 minutes, 25 minutes from the Anaheim Vineyard Church, which is the kind of the very original Vineyard Church. And so we were able to worship with them every Sunday, as well as masses of other churches on Saturday nights and Sunday nights and all of this kind of thing. Uh, but it felt like a bit of a pilgrimage for us. We, we went to a, the place where in some ways uh, it all began. And we, we uh, were able to have dinner with a whole bunch of people who had been there right 40 years ago at the start of the movement to which we now belong, uh, including some members of John Wimber's family, which was just such a privilege and really, really a powerful time. Uh, and then we came back from there. Uh, the kids went to Soul Survivor. We went away to a prayer ministry retreat for a week. And it was, that was full on, right? So, so we had, each of us, three, we received three hours of personal prayer ministry every day for six days. Uh, so Taryn, three hours in the morning. Me, three hours in the afternoon. And then we also had six hours of prayer ministry together as a couple during that week. It was full on but it was incredibly powerful. Uh, and what the Lord was doing there was he was um, uh, challenging some of the things that we believe about ourselves. And it's true to say that we all believe things about ourselves that are not true. And so he was replacing those things by his spirit with a bunch of things that are true about ourselves. And it was just really, really powerful. And then we came back from there uh, just for a few days, and then we went to France, and we did a kind of a caravan holiday in France for a couple of weeks, uh, and spent lots of time reading and praying and dreaming. And then the kids went back to school, and, and we had a couple of weeks, really, until we came back to work. But we spent some of that time at uh, an event, which was uh, 72 hours of non-stop worship which was really fascinating and some really sweet moments there. And also we went to see a leadership psychologist who I've been to visit before and we spent two days with him. And again, that was absolutely life-changing. And so I guess that sounds a little bit like, gosh, you did a lot. You know, you hardly stopped. But, but I mean, I've just said in two or three minutes what took three months to do. And so uh, it, it, was, it felt very slow. And we discovered what the psalmist really meant when he said, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. And in so many ways, almost everything that Jesus did for us during those three months was internal to us. You know, like I said, we didn't at most of the time even know whether there still was a church, although we were confident that there would be. So it was pointless asking Jesus for a whole bunch of things to do with the church. We were just really asking him to do stuff inside us. And I just want to say, we, we will never forget that you gave us that gift. And our children will never forget that you gave us that gift. It was so profoundly life-changing. And we may look different, although Taryn's hair color is different. We may look different. We may look the same, but, but we are entirely different people on the inside. And the truth is that the Lord met with us in so many ways, uh, so much of it through Scripture. 
And so we, we were just reading and reading and reading just chunks and chunks of scripture, meditating on individual verses, reading some days six to eight books of the Bible in a day, just reading and reading. And Jesus met us in this book in the most amazing way. And I would say that I haven't felt as close to the Lord Jesus uh, since I became a Christian when I was 15 as I do right now. And I would say that this book uh, hasn't been more alive to me since I was that kind of age uh, as it is now. It's just it's so sweet and so precious. And we kept reading things in the Bible and thinking, who spiked my Bible? You know, who's put things in there that weren't there before? But of course, they've always been there. But we've just discovered things in there that we didn't know before. And if I could just like summarize in, in a way, like in, in a few words, what, what it is that the Lord's been doing us. In Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about God's kindness leading us to repentance. And actually, I would say that that we've spent a lot of time repenting of things. And it hasn't felt hard. It hasn't felt brutal. It's felt uh, um, like the Lord has been incredibly stern with us. But at the same time, just so freeing and so life-giving. And it's been absolutely amazing. And so what we want to do this morning is just to share some of those things with you. Because, like I said, as we've shared it with our you know, immediate leadership team, people have been saying, that feels like it's for all of us. And so we'll just see whether that resonates with you. The first thing that we would want to say is this. Uh, the grass really isn't greener anywhere else. The grass that we have in our church is really, really green. It's funny, isn't it? Like sometimes you need to be taken, removed from your immediate situation to discover what it is that you have. And the truth is that we've, you know, we... Uh, as our church has grown and we've begun to like, travel around and meet people around and about, loads of people have said to me over the years, oh, it sounds amazing what's happening in your church. Like God is doing amazing things in Aberdeen, isn't he? And if I'm honest, I've often thought and also said, well, not really. Like if you were to actually be up in Aberdeen and in the Shire and you would see the complexity of what we're doing and you would see the stress and you would see like, all the things that aren't working and you would see, you know, all kinds of things that, that are just a bit of a mess. And, and I feel like the Lord has really, really rebuked me because it is amazing what Jesus has done. It is amazing. It's a miracle. And, uh, you know, for those of us who are around 11 or 12 years ago when this journey kind of began and we think back from where we were to where we are is nothing short of incredible. And we have just a, a, such a profound sense of stewardship that we didn't have before. It is our responsibility. And, and if I could, you know, if you go away with nothing else from this morning, if you could understand this. We, as, like, if you're visiting with us this morning, it's great to have you with us. Maybe you're in one of our sites, you're new to our church, or you just come for a visit, that's great. But if you have counted yourself into our church, if you've filled in a card at some point over the years, and you've said, you know, this is where we ah, this, this is my people, then I would say to you, you are also responsible for stewarding what it is that God is doing amongst us. We are responsible for looking after the treasure. Everything else that we are uh, seeing really comes out of our time in Scripture. And, and so I just want to highlight one or two things. The first thing 
is to do with healing and authority. As we, we were reading through the New Testament and the, you know, the Gospels and, and the Acts of the Apostles, we were drawn in again and again to the miracles of Jesus. And the problem is when you see things in the Bible that, that are there, once you've seen them, you can't unsee them. And what we saw again and again in Jesus' miracles was that the only way to really understand the miracles of Jesus is the word authority. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a long-standing joke in, in the Christian world that, that the prayers that Jesus prays when he's ministering healing to people are really, really short prayers. But the truth is, that's nonsense. They're not prayers. In fact, you'll never see Jesus praying for healing, and you'll never see the uh, early church really praying for healing. What you see is uh, Jesus rebukes the fever, or he commands the demon, or he, um, there, are, there are a whole bunch of imperatives. So he might say, stretch out your hand, or come forth. Or, so this is not Jesus asking the Father to do something. This is Jesus using the authority that the Father has given him. And it turns out that Jesus has authority over sickness and over demons. So if that's true, that is a really, really important and significant thing for us. And if you're not sure whether I'm right, just look at how the people respond. Because again and again, what the Bible says is that everyone was amazed at his power and his authority. And the, the religious leaders of the day start to say, where did you get your authority from? And then when he sends out the 12 to go and minister healing in all the towns and villages around, it says this, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to heal the sick. And then he sends out the 72, and it says, I've given you authority to overcome the power of the evil one. And then when he teaches them, and he's explaining what it is to be a disciple, what it is to be a follower of Jesus, what he says is that there is an inherent authority uh, that's associated with being a disciple of Jesus that is ours to exercise on behalf of the Father. And so he says, you could speak to a mulberry tree and say, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would have to do that. Or he says, you could speak to a mountain and tell it to move, and it would have to move. And then you see in the early church, once Jesus has ascended to be with his Father, after Pentecost, they carry on doing exactly what they were doing before. And so Peter and John at the temple gate, they say to this guy, we don't have silver or gold, but what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up! It's not a prayer, is it? And so uh, it's really a key piece of revelation for us that, w that, that once we, now that we've seen that, that's got some really significant implications for us. That there is an authority that is available to me as a follower of Jesus, as part of my inheritance in Christ, that I haven't really sought to understand or to teach. And I want to apologize to the church for that. And I want to say that, that 
like I said, it, this is something that the Lord's been speaking to Taryn and I about, and we are now committed. We are going on a journey of discovering, and you can hear I'm at the end of my words. I, I feel like an absolute baby. I feel like I've got no maturity in this whatsoever, but all I'm saying is I've seen something in the Bible, and it seems to me that we're supposed to do what Jesus and the early church did, and so uh, the implication is, therefore, that we're going to go on a journey of discovery, and our invitation is, would you join with us? You know, would you, when it comes to it, when you're ministering and praying for people and you know that they're um, unwell, would you try to step into a place of authority, try to understand what that is and just, and, and maybe one of you will uh, get there before us and then you can teach us all how it works. Uh, the amazing thing is that you can go into any vineyard church in the world, and there are two and a half thousand or more vineyard churches in a hundred different countries all over the world, every continent, and you can discover a whole bunch of uh, th uh, things that are the same, and, and that's why we, we've loved being part of this movement, because we share theology, we share values, we share practices, and so for example, you know, you could go to any vineyard church and you would be confident that they would be serving the poor. And you could go to intervent any vineyard church and you could be confident that there was uh, a desire to connect with the Lord in worship in a way that's intimate and not just about singing songs about God, but is also singing songs to God. And I could go on and on. But, but one of the things that is most precious to us as a, a family, a movement, is a, an understanding about the theology of the kingdom of God. And so just to kind of give a, an incredibly brief summary on the theology of the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, the prophets start to look forward to a time when the fall will be undone. So the king will come, and when the king comes, he'll undo the works of the enemy, and he'll do that by um, putting an end to suffering, putting an end to pain, putting an end to death. Uh, he'll do that by making it possible for the lion to lay down with the lamb and for children to play in the viper's nest. And so they're longing for this moment when the king will come, he'll bring his rule and his reign, and the works of the enemy will be stamped out. But when Jesus comes, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And uh, what becomes clear is that even though the kingdom has come in the coming of Jesus, it's not here in all of its fullness. And so therefore, um, uh, we can experience pain and joy and sorrow and healing and breakdown and breakthrough. And often we experience a whole bunch of those things in our Christian lives, sometimes even on the same day. Because the kingdom is here but not in all of its fullness. And so our friend Ellie Mumford, she says, the kingdom of God is a bit like a white picket fence. You know, one of those fences where it's like loads of slats. And so she, she says, it's almost as if the kingdom is here and then not here and then here and then not here and then here and then not here. Now, that's, uh, Taryn and I have found that to be so helpful over the years to understand why so many of our friends experience so much sorrow at the same time as we see God doing all kinds of amazing things in our lives. But if we're honest, we feel rebuked by the Lord because we've allowed this understanding of the kingdom, the now and the not yet, the already and the not yet, to be a get-out clause. We've allowed it to become a thing where, where when we're praying for someone to be healed, we've already got in our minds, well, this probably isn't going to be 
an answer to prayer. And so the good thing is I can explain now what, why, why God doesn't always answer prayer. And the problem is that this white picket fence is invisible. So we don't know whether the kingdom is about to break in or not. And so if we're honest, our assumption has almost been, well, it, it probably isn't here in this moment. And yet, what if it is? What if, what if when we minister healing to someone, what if that is the moment? And so we've come to understand that, in, I don't know whether you've ever seen that Indiana Jones film where they've got to cross over a big, big chasm but they, and there's a bridge there, but they can't see it. And so they have to kind of walk across the bridge in faith that it's going to be there. We've come to realize that, that that is the way to live the Christian life. And so we're just going to flip and lean against that fence every time. And we're going to put the full weight of whatever authority we've come to understand. We're going to just keep leaning against the fence. Every time we see someone who is sick, we're going to minister in the full authority that Jesus gives us. And maybe sometimes the kingdom will be there and there'll be healing that we never would have seen if we hadn't done that. And so our invitation is, please would you join us on that journey? And please would you do that not only in a church building or in a school hall, but please would you do that in your workplace? And at the school gate. And let's see what God will do. Like I say, one thing, sometimes when you see things, you can't unsee them. Wouldn't it be amazing if our church were to become known as the place where miracles happen? If you want a miracle in your life, if the doctors have told you there's nothing else that can be done, what if, what if people would say, you should go to Catalyst Vineyard in one of its sites because I'll tell you what, miracles happen there. That's what we're going for. Healing and authority. Goodness, I'm taking a long time over this. Okay, next one. The cost. The cost of discipleship. I'll touch on this really briefly because we're actually starting a new series called The Cost and we're going to really drill down on some of this stuff over the next few months. But the whole time we're away, we're reading about the early church and we're seeing these people who are being persecuted and hated for what they believe and what they preach. And they're clinging to one another. And they're clinging to God. And they're crying out to God that God would intervene in these situations. And they're paying this extraordinary cost for following him. And we're reading the words of Jesus over and over again. And we're reading that to, to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus is about self-denial. And it's about taking up your cross. And it's about selling your possessions and giving to the poor. And it's about loving Jesus so much that you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sisters and your uh, sons and your daughters. It's like you love Jesus so much that everything else pales into insignificance in comparison. And it's about experiencing hate and persecution and death. And the truth is that you could go to China or to Afghanistan or to Vietnam or to Iran and you would find Christians who are living exactly the same life. But we have got so much to learn in the Western world. And we sense Jesus drawing us away from lukewarm mediocrity to a life that is absolutely dedicated to the service of Jesus. And we sense Jesus challenging everything about what discipleship really means and inviting us to go all in again. And 
again, the sense is that we're all being invited as a church family to reset our discipleship, control or delete, or hard reset, and to say, this is a moment, an opportunity in God to put our houses in order and to re-choose to follow Jesus no matter what the cost, to re-decide he's the treasure hidden in the field. He's the pearl of great price. We're going to give everything we are, everything we have. If he asks us to give up anything or to surrender everything or to pay whatever cost, we would be willing to do that. And the, the amazing thing that we're starting to discover as we've been walking along the journey is the freedom, the absolute freedom that comes from letting go of everything else. And what's so amazing is that there is abundant joy to be found. The treasure, uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, in his joy he went and sold everything he had. And, and you know that to be true if you've ever met anyone who's just become a Christian. Because people have just become Christians. They're so thrilled. They're so delighted. They're so excited. that I can't believe Jesus has done all this for me and he's changing my life. I've never, I never imagined that this would be possible. And we're like, wouldn't it be amazing if our entire church was filled with that joy once again? Let's go, for that. Let's go on that journey together. Uh, the next one uh, is, is the final one and almost certainly the most important thing and that is to do with the glory of God. While we were in France, I was reading through the Old Testament and I was reading through the story of the tabernacle uh, and like I just read it to you earlier on, like quite a lot of it, I don't know how to say this rever reverently, there's a lot of detail in there. Should we just say it like that? There's a lot of detail in there and, you know, like I was with the Lord and I've got the scriptures there and I'm reading it and I'm saying, Lord, I know that this is your word to me. You need to show me how this is God's word to me. You know, it's like, okay, the tent poles and the loops and the, you know, no, these people have got to carry those poles and these people have got to carry those poles. And, and it goes on and on for chapters and chapters. And then there's the golden calf. So, so Moses gets all these instructions for the tabernacle on the mountain. He comes down from the mountain to discover the golden calf that they've made in his absence. And then, just in case we weren't as excited already, you know, excited enough already, it's all repeated all over again. And then they made the temple, you know, according to the instructions that they'd had and the tent poles and the, you know, the plates and the bowls and the, the bronze this and the gold that and the, the curtain of this and the covering on the curtain. And it's like, oh my goodness, Lord, what is this all about? It just feels like so detailed and so arbitrary. And I felt like the Lord said to me, it's a picture of our church. The Lord has given us this blueprint for our church. I, I don't think a lot of churches get what we've had. It's been so kind. The Lord gave us this blueprint through a whole bunch of prophetic words and, and, and through a whole bunch of circumstances and people speaking into the life of our church. It was like so clear what we were to do. And, you know, sometimes people will say like, oh, why can't we have a site there? And I'll come up with some kind of answer like, oh, well, it's because of this and that. And then I secretly say to the Lord, yeah, Lord, why can't we have a site there? And then, you know, people will say, well, why is it that you have sites up to that distance away, but then they become church plants when they go a bit further? And I, again, I come up with some kind of answer that's, oh, well, it's... Blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and then I say to the Lord, yeah, why can't we do... You know, what? But, but it's just like the Lord's just given us the blueprint, and we're not free to just elaborate. We're not free to kind of freestyle it. 
It's like the Lord has told us how this thing is to work. And, and so, you know, in the same way as Mo, it says again and again about Moses, Moses did as the Lord had told him to do. Like, our church has just done what we've been told to do. That's the first feature. There are already three features of this tabernacle story. That's the first one. It's really, really detailed. The second unavoidable feature of the Exodus story is the grumbling and complaining. I mean, the Israelites, they never stop complaining. After, it actually begins three days after this miraculous rescue from Egypt. Three days. You know, they, they, they've had God uh, bear his mighty arm and, you know, with an outstretched hand. He's reached into Egypt. He's pulled them out of Egypt. And then he's closed the seas over the Egyptians. And three days later, the, Egypt, the Israelites are saying, this water doesn't taste very nice. And then, actually, when I counted it up, throughout the story of the Exodus, on nine different occasions, the Israelites complain. And they complain about just about everything you could possibly imagine. Oh, if only we had garlic, then this whole journey would make sense, you know. Or uh, the pomegranates. Could we please, God, have pomegranates? And they say things like, this wretched manna that is falling out of the sky, this wretched food. And I think when you read it, you're supposed to think, what absolute idiots. How ridiculous that they would complain about food falling from the sky. How ridiculous that they would complain about having been rescued in such a dramatic way. How could you find anything to complain about when you've been rescued like that? And, of course, what I realize is that no one ever sees themselves as the Israelites when they read this story. We've realized that the Lord was highlighting something in our lives and in our own hearts. And we think highlighting something in the life of our church family. Because the truth is that for the first five or six years that, uh, we, since we became the leaders of the church, it was so brilliant and so amazing what God was doing that we were all just delighted. Like it was ama- And so we had clear water in every direction. We were all just looking one another in the eye going, can you believe this? This is wild. You know, people are becoming Christians. The church is growing. You know, we're filling up the balcony. Like we're going to have to find a way of dealing with the space problem. Uh, and it was like, this is so amazing. The Lord has reached in here. He's done something so incredible. And so none of us complained about anything because we were just so delighted. But in the last two or three years, We've found a lot to complain about. And complaining and grumbling and negativity has become a feature of our church, which in a way that is just not healthy. And just to be, just to be totally honest, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're removed from the church, we're in a different country, and we started to look at what, why are we so tired? That's why we were so tired. I'm just going to say it how it is. Because for all the amazing things that the Lord's been doing amongst us, we can always find something to complain about. And it's stolen our joy. 
And when we sat down and we spoke to the site pastors and, and so on, when we got back and we said, you know, we've just realized we're so tired, or we were so tired, and the reason we were so tired is partly because of just the, the grumbling and complaining that's become a feature of our own hearts and become a feature in the life of our church. They all said, we see that too. And, you know, each one of the site pastors lined up to say, actually, I, I'm not feeling much joy in my job at the moment. And the reason is because there's so many things to complain about. And like I said, no one ever sees themselves as the Israelites. And so everyone who's bringing something is bringing it with the best intentions and often because they love our church. And, you know, I, I, I totally see that. And so everyone is, is coming with, oh, I don't know whether you've noticed, but this is a problem. I don't know whether you've noticed, but this isn't working. I, I, you know, th this is rubbish. This is, and, and the point is that in, in this story, no one gets away with doing that. And in fact, every single time when the Israelites complain, God is angry. And it comes to the point in Numbers chapter 11 where these, the Israelites are saying, this wretched food that falls out of the sky. And God doesn't say, you're rejecting my food that I'm giving you. He said, you've rejected me. This grumbling and complaining and negativity is an offense to God. And as a church... We want to host God's presence. We want God to show up in, in ways that are amazing and miraculous. And if we want that, we, haven't, we mustn't do anything that offends God. And so uh, uh, what we want to do is to just draw a line today and to say no longer will this be a feature of our church. We will not be that people anymore. We're not going to do that. In fact, we're going to be precisely the opposite. The kind of family we are from now on is we're going to be uh, the most encouraging people that anyone has ever met. And we're going to be a thankful people. And we're going to say, do you know what? It's amazing what God's doing. Let's just enjoy that. And when we hear one another, you, know, you might overhear someone saying, oh, there's no pomegranates. Or, you know, if only we had cucumbers. Um, in that moment, we're going to call one another out and we're going to say, hey, don't you, don't, yeah, we, we don't do that here. Yes, remember, we, 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 we go for encouragement. And we're going to make sure specifically that anyone who carries any responsibility that is, relates to leadership, anyone who's leading anything at all, we're going to make sure that their work is a joy and not a burden. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. It says, honor your leaders and submit to their authority. Because they're people who have to give an account and do that so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. So we're going to make sure that anyone who carries any kind of leadership in our church finds that to be a joy. We're going to be the most encouraging people that anyone has ever met. And the reason why that's so massively important, and I'm just coming into land with this, is the final feature of the Exodus narrative is that all of the building and all of the hard work and all of the paying careful attention to the blueprint is building towards the very last passage in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, which is the, the very last passage that I read out there. The glory of God comes and fills the tabernacle. Earlier on, God has already said to Moses, hey, listen, Moses, I'm so fed up with these people and the way that they keep grumbling and complaining. And so you guys, I'll, I'll send some angels and, and you guys can go and inherit the land and you can have everything that I promised. And Moses says, I don't want everything that you've promised if I can't have your presence. 
The presence is what this is all for. All of the building, and we've, we, like we've been building for the last 11 years. It's building, building, building. And it's been hard work. It's also been really fun. And we now have sites that are spread out all over the northeast of Scotland. We've planted churches all over Scotland. Uh, and it's really amazing, all this building, 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 11 years of building. But the purpose of all of the building is so that the glory of God can come and fill his tabernacle. The tabernacle is a picture of the church. And the tabernacle is a picture of us as individuals, people who carry the presence of God. God comes and lives within us in the same way as he lived within the tabernacle in the Exodus story. Nobody ever says, hey, you know that tabernacle? I know it's miles and miles away. It's really worth going there. It's a really great tent. No one ever does that. No one ever says, you know, they don't all gather around and say, wow, great poles, guys. You know, that, wow. You know, the hooks and the loops and the curtains and the, you know, and the, the, the covering over the thing, and all, that's really impressive. Like, you've done a great job at building that tent. No one ever does that. Why? Because what they actually do is they say, you need to get there because that's where God is. The manifest presence of God, the glory of God. So you need to get there. And so they gather around. They often gather around this tabernacle because they want to know what God is like. And we've come to realize that, you know, over the last five or six years, we've, you know, we've opened up the doors of our church and we've invited people. If you want to learn about being, what being a multi-site church might look like, we'll come and share all of our mistakes with you. And so over the last five or six years, about 100 churches we've served in that way. But we've come to realize that it's really unsatisfying to be known as the multi-site church. What about if we were to be known as the church where the glory of God visits? Wouldn't that be more fun? If we could distill down to a single sentence the thing that we feel God is saying to us about this tabernacle thing, it's that the last 11 years have been about a season of building. And, and it's right that we continue to build. We need to add more sites in places where there aren't uh, life-giving uh, churches. Or to supplement what God is already doing in places. And it's right to plant churches in other parts of Scotland. But the season of building has to be eclipsed by a season of the coming of God's glory. And that's what we're desperate for. You know, when you're removed from a thing for three months, you start to think, what would we love to see in the next season of our church? That's what we want to see. The presence of God just coming and being so manifest, so present. We want to see God doing things that make your hair stand on end. We've come to realize that we are now strategically positioned all over the northeast of Scotland so that God can pour out his glory and we can enjoy it. And then when we go out from here on a Monday morning, we carry God's glory with us. And who knows what could happen in all kinds of industries, all kinds of sectors of society, all kinds of geographical places. And so in one sense, nothing needs to change 
But in another sense, lots needs to change. You know, like, I don't know whether this is a relief to you, but there's not going to be like a great big new program of anything. You know, like, uh, I don't know whether you're thinking, I wonder what they'll come back with next. You know, the next big strategy. There's no big strategy. There's no big project. There's no big plan. Uh, we just know that this is what the next season of our church is to be about. And so that's what we're going to do. And so we'll have to stop some things to make a bit more space in the calendar and in our own heads. Um, we, we are going to do one or two things. So, for example, n- not tonight, but next Sunday night, we're relaunching our evening service. We thought really carefully about a new name for our evening service. We've come up with a brilliant new name for our evening service. We're going to call it the evening service. Uh, how do you like it? It took a long time, that. Um, and w- what we're going to do is we're going to say, do you know what? If you would like a double portion on a Sunday, if you're like, I, I'm just desperate to learn the language of presence. I'm desperate to figure out what this glory thing is all about. And you want to just soak in God's presence. You want to come and just worship and adore Jesus uh, for a second time on a Sunday. Please, will you come? Uh, if, if you're not able to make it on a Sunday morning because little Johnny's got football or rugby or whatever it is, Sunday night is a great option. We're going to move it to six o'clock so that then, you know, if, if you've got kids, they can, they could, you can bring them with you. It's not going to be any kids' ministry at this stage, but, but um, you know, they can just come and be part of the worship too. Or maybe you're just uh, not, not able to come for another reason or you're serving on a team. Sunday night, like we have to go on a journey as a family together in terms of exploring what it means to know what God's glory is like. And so uh, Sunday night is going to be a great option for that, and we'd encourage that. So next Sunday, 6 o'clock, in here, um, maybe not as many chairs, like maybe just more space, just to lie down, face down, face up, uh, sit down, um, dance. Uh, we're going to make some space for creativity and all of that. We just want to make it make space. We are going to preach still, but with much more space, less interruption. I'd love to, to invite you to come to that. The second thing is we just recognize that on Sunday mornings we can't do everything or even Sunday nights, and so what we're going to do is once a month, we're going to give the best night of the week to God. And so on a Friday night uh, here, we're, we're going to open up the doors, uh, and we're, we're, we're going to have a, just an opportunity to, to just adore Jesus uh, and, and to worship him, and we're going to call it the upper room, because the upper room is the place where Jesus met with his disciples. It's the place where Jesus poured out his spirit. And we're just going to say, I wonder what would happen if just once a month on the best night of the week we gave that to Jesus and we just explored, uh, just experienced his presence. And so we, there's no three-line whip. If me and Taryn and the band are here, we would be happy with that because we know that this is a journey that God's calling us to. But we would invite anyone from any site. We know that it's a long trek for some people. Um, but we just invite to be part of it. And then the final thing is, we're going to be relaunching prayer and fasting. This whole authority thing, I, I've been asking people who know about healing, saying, how do you grow in spiritual authority? And people kept pointing me to that verse where, where Jesus, the disciples have been unable to cast out demons. And Jesus says, oh yeah, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And so we want to grow in spiritual authority. We want, to, we want to seek God's presence in a fresh way. And so for, it's nearly two years now, lots of people in our church have been fasting on a Monday and praying. And we're just inviting you once again to join in that journey together 
uh, we'll send out more details and a sign up. And if you want to sign up, we'd love you to do, to do that. So like I say, the, 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 this is what the Lord's saying to me and Taryn, but, but you're invited. And let's see what the Lord's going to do. Why don't we stand?